It's lovely to be here at the Safe Site Institute. My wife, Professor Mary Crock, and I are delighted to be here this morning. We applaud the work of the Safe Site Institute, and I and Mary's father, Professor Jared Crock, the late Professor Crock, was the first professor of ophthalmology in the whole of, us, of Australia. So. Mary's been following ophthalmological work for the last six decades. And with Professor Grigg, the frontiers are now quite extraordinary. I'm looking forward to speaking to teachers and particularly to parents and young people today. Because in some ways, I represent an historical curiosity in that I'm nearly 71 and the things I'm going to talk about have changed. But my message, which is the title of my book, is that I was born at the right time in a developed country where technology was going to change my life, as with many other vision-impaired and totally blind people, and allow us to work on a level playing field. Never before in the history of our world has technology aided we blind and vision-impaired and I want to talk a little bit about that today. And my book, Born at the Right Time, um, I've got a few copies that I can sell at morning tea. And I, I <laughs> Don't buy Shakespeare. He's dead and he, he doesn't have a mortgage, right? <laughs> my wife is tired of me making that joke. <laughs> All right. I was born uh, nearly 71 years ago and I suffer from retrolental fibroplasia, which is a disease now that's very rare. But after World War II, in an endeavour to save the lives of Prem babies, we were put in plastic humidity cribs made from the perspex of World War II fighter pilot cockpits. It was the same material and was pumped in with pure oxygen. And as Professor Grigg and the ophthalmologists in this room would explain far better than I, the eye, that's the EYE, is one of the last organs to develop in the neonate and oxygen was very strong. Um, it caused arteries in the eyes to um, come to pieces. The eyes tried to build blood vessels on the backs of the retinas to survive. This meant that the retinas were pulled off and so the optic nerves. I may have seen for a few days in my humidity crib, albeit that my eyes were probably closed, but um, I belong to a large cohort around the Western world where we knew that uh, we were saving lives, but we couldn't quite work out initially where the vision problem was. Uh, Australia's Kate Campbell, um, who oversaw me in 1948, had an understanding that it was oxygen and eyesight. There was a knowledge about this, but no one quite knew where the interface was until um, an experiment was done in Baltimore, and I think ethics committees these days wouldn't approve of it. The doctors decided that they would divide the next 12 months of prem births into two groups. Group A, they would give the same amount of oxygen to, and group B, they would halve it. They didn't want to tell the parents in case the parents thought, well, if my kid gets half the oxygen, maybe he's got half the chance of living. 
But what did they find? They found that those that had half the oxygen had less vision problems. And now there's very clever technology that takes place with PREMS, even at 30 weeks, where there's great control of how much oxygen they get. And so retrolental fibroplasia, at least in the developed world, is now a rare, if almost non-existent disease. But at my time, between 1945 and 1955, there were approximately 10,000 of us in the developed world that hadn't been bombed out by World War II. That is Br Britain, the United States, Canada, New Zealand, Australia, France, and Germany. One of us is very rich, and the rest of us would like him to spread it around a little bit. His name is Steveland Judkin. Does anyone know who Steveland Judkin is? Stevie Wonder. Born two years after me in Michigan um, from a very poor family, another retrolental. And, um, but he's been a great supporter. Not only is he an extraordinary musician, but in recent times at the United Nations, he has given us enormous help. Now, there'll be some here in the audience, I'm willing to bet, and I want to chat at morning tea, who've um, had PREMS 30, 31 weeks. I've just read an extraordinary book um, called Mothership. There are several books called Mothership. This is by a woman called Siegel, I forget her first name, who kept a diary of being in hospital eight or nine weeks with her twins. And she said she found out the truth by going to what they called the milking shed, where the ladies expressed milk. She said, with your tops off, no secrets were kept. And she found out, she found out the gossip of the hospital and what the doctors were and were not doing. Um, if you want to read more about retrolental fibroplasia, I think the best place to look is in the Washington Post of April 2005. There's a man called David Brown. He's now gone into environmental research. But his article, Establishing Proof, will give you the history of ophthalmology. Well, that's enough about my ophthalmology, um, my, my retrolental fibroplasia. It meant, of course, that I had no sight and that meant really that I wasn't in the issue of worrying about sight fading or sight coming back or I was static, which meant that I could work off that base. My childhood was very complicated. Uh, I go into it in the book. I don't want to go into details. Um, I think it'd be fair to say that whatever was left of my parents' marriage by the time I was born melted away. That often happens with disabled children. I don't ever remember my father picking me up which is quite interesting. Um, some dads can't handle disability. Um, I went to a special school, and I am a great believer in children with disabilities, and particularly vision impaired and blind children, to go to mainstream school. Um, I went to school uh, in what was called the Royal Victorian Institute for the Blind. Um, it had previously been the Royal Victorian Asylum for the Blind, but of course the word asylum had a different meaning in the 19th century to what it does today. Um, all these stone walls, and I was there with some of my cohort were brain damaged. Um, and there was this wire fence on the playground, I'm sort of pointing. And this fence, across that was the factory. And we could hear the hooter go when we were having play after school. And that was where blind and vision impaired people made baskets and cane furniture um, because there weren't any jobs. 
And if you were, in those days, to use the term a housewife, it was a badge of honour to say that your basket, this is before plastic bags, was made by the blind, or your bassinet, in which your child was, was made by the blind. And because the world of print was close to us, there wasn't a braille printing press in Australia. All the braille I read was by hand. There were some American books, they were all religious, I didn't read them, and there was a very... There was a very small library of British books, so I became well-versed in British history. But when um, I was getting into trouble in the playground at the age of six, this staff member said, listen, 10 years' time, 16, you'll be over that fence and out of my responsibility, and I cried, and I sat on my kindergarten teacher's lap because I thought I was being bullied, there was domestic violence at home, I thought life isn't looking too good. In fact, in my book, there's a picture of me and Mary said, you didn't look happy. And I said, no, of course I wasn't happy. Um, but but um, my kindergarten teacher who ended up reading to me at university, um, um, she said, you'll never have to worry. Well, I won't go dwelling into childhood. I went to an ordinary high school and I did well enough to get into university. I wanted to be a high school history teacher. I thought I'd love that. Um, I overshot the marks and got into law school. And so we had a family discussion because lawyers really were on the other side. And uh, we thought, well, well, um, you know, my Marxist origins, we thought, well, um, give it a year. So I gave it a year and topped a couple of things. And so I ended up uh, becoming a lawyer. In those days, of course, there were tape recorders, no technology. and. Uh, I had to get family and friends to read me material. And my students, well, well, my fellow classmates read me material. And later on, when I became a young teacher, my students would read to me. And of course, uh, when I was a student, I could get um, students to read me criminal law. But um, trying to read me um, ancient British property law on novel to season, it was very hard to get people to do that. <laughs> I would have loved to have been a barrister. You can see that now. I would have loved to have been a barrister. Um, but I realised when I was graduating in 1971, there wasn't technology. I didn't anticipate the internet. I didn't anticipate anything. And I thought, I know what lawyers are like. They're out for the dollar. And um, I would be swamped by the other side with documents at the last minute. And how could I read them? Well, if I had grown up now... I would be a barrister and my wife would say, yes, she would have ended up an alcoholic by 40. <laughs> <laughs> but I thought, what, what could I do? Uh, and I thought, if I could read the material beforehand, I could teach it. But how would I get a university to accept me? And the only way I could see in those days of cultural cringe was going to another country and studying more. So I ended up going to Canada 47 years ago as a nervous 23-year-old and ended up studying advanced labour relations law. I well remember landing in Vancouver and I was very young. I'd never been on a plane before. In fact, when I got on the plane, I asked about pa parachutes because I'd learned about those in <laughs> World War II. <laughs> this is true. I, 23, I'd never stayed in a hotel. I'd never... We were very poor. We didn't have hot water in our house till I came back from graduate school. So and I asked about a parachute and they said, listen, if this goes down, you don't need to worry. 
and there were no uh, Walkmen, right? I, I, couldn't, I couldn't read. There was no Braille. I just had to sit there for 24 hours and think. Um, but anyway, um, when I got to Vancouver, this guy said to me, you cannot be a British Commonwealth scholar. It's just not possible. You're in for the welfare. I said, no, no, no. I said, we have better welfare in Australia. So he gave me a visa for a week. And uh, when I went to the university, the university sorted it out. So I came back, and what I find extraordinary now, and it's kind of strange, and I never thought deeply enough at the time, but I was offered a tenured position teaching labour law at Monash University when I was 25. Uh, um, when many of my disabled friends were not getting jobs. And I owe a great deal to that university for having faith um, in me uh, being a law teacher. How much time have I got? Oh, well, plenty. Well, well let, let's just... Uh, so I ended up teaching. Um, I, uh, I wasn't sure whether I'd end up having relationships. Uh, many of we disabled people um, get so involved in our work and it's very hard to partner. And I was working about 14 hours a day using tape recorders. I, I didn't think I'd have children, so I ended up um, one day every couple of weeks working at a daycare centre. I don't think that let a guy in a daycare centre anymore. But uh, yes, I did, I did. And you can read all about that. And, and, and then 30, 34 years ago, two weeks ago on Tuesday the 6th of August, um, I went out with Professor Croc over there, who was then Ms Croc, a young lawyer, um, on our first date. And uh, she said, and you can talk to her later, that she could not believe that somebody who could dance so badly would even get up. <laughs> <laughs> the truth was my mother was dying. In fact, she died three days later. And, and I thought, screw this. I'm going to just get up and dance. Anyway, um, we got engaged six weeks later. Um, now, look, if my daughter came and said she'd only known someone for six weeks, I'd say, darling, if he's after money, tell him that... Um, <laughs> anyway, um, uh, it was um, very interesting uh, being with a person with vision. Quite, quite extraordinary, really. Um, um, Mary came out one day, we were in my apartment. We are going out somewhere and she was wandering around. I said, what's wrong? She said, there isn't a mirror in this house. <laughs> I said, no, 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 uh, I don't have one. So in our bedroom, there is a mirror that I bought for her wedding. And one night, I got into my pyjamas. Mary had gone home, went in to clean my teeth. And my way of cleaning my teeth is I grabbed a toothpaste and I go, <laughs> I did it. I nearly died. I was some sort of hand cream. I wasn't used to someone, <laughs> someone putting that. Well, I was very fortunate indeed, and we had three children, and they're all grown up and very gifted and interesting. Um, I don't talk much about them because I see in them um, character traits which I have tried to solve by good manners and breeding <laughs> and without success, so I, I hope they'll be better. My life turned around in the 80s um, because thunderbolts occurred. Um, there was sex, sexuality, marriage, children, and technology. And it's technology I want to spend the last few minutes talking about because it changed my life and 
changing the life of many and for many of you with vision impaired children, the technology will only get better. My first computer, which I got when our first child was a month old, was a um, humanware um, computer. It had 84Ks of memory. I think there's more in my watch, 84Ks. <laughs> it was a blind computer. It didn't have a screen. It was a keynote gold, but it, it could hold 10 pages of text and, and it could read back what I had written. I had written my first book, about 600 pages with a, a now retired judge, Richard Tracy. Um, we were young academics at the time. Um, and I just did it from memory on an ordinary typewriter. I was never able to read back what I'd written. So this was quite extraordinary that you would have a computer that would read back what you'd written. And then, within a couple of years later, I got a scanner. Now, they were invented by a guy called Richard Kurzweil, who's a rather strange man who's overly worried about death and trying to attach his brain to computers so he won't die, um, <laughs> which is really a bit silly. The issue in life is not death, it's what you do with your life. And he, anyway, his scanner, once they got charged couple devices organised, meant that you could put a book on it, it would scan it and read it out. I mean, I was, I was very shy and, and I wouldn't have asked Professor Grieg to read me a sexually explicit book. <laughs> but, but now I could put it you know, on the screen at night time and, and read away. <laughs> but <laughs> seriously, um, that technology has now moved to the iPhone. And all of my technology now sits on the iPhone. And um, for many of my vision impaired friends, do any of you use Zoom? Yes? Zoom is fantastic. I use a program called JAWS, Job Access with Speak, um, which speaks out what is on my computer screen, to put it simply. And its vision equivalent is Zoom. And you can even get, if you, if you want to use JAWS and Zoom together, if your vision is fading, you get a program called Fusion. But Zoom is quite extraordinary and it allows vision impaired people to do all sorts of things on the computer to magnify the text. And I think you'll, you'll learn about that later. Um, how many of you have iPhones here? Can we get them out? Yes. Have you looked at the technology on iPhones for vision impaired people? Yeah? Okay. Well, I think you know, but I'll just go through this quickly. If you go to settings, you will find settings. And then find general. And then accessibility. Now look, be very careful what you press because you, you've got to care. But, but the first thing is vision. And after vision, there's voiceover on. And if you press voiceover on, you'll get a voice, which you may want to use. But if you don't necessarily want to use that, you can go on into areas of vision about altering text sizes and doing all sorts of clever things. Um, if you press voiceover on, you can also go into Braille outputs and you can c connect your iPhone with a, with a Braille um, computer, as I do. Or if you have difficulties with your hands, um, you have cerebral palsy, you can go into all sorts of things. Most people don't realise that their iPhones are what we call universal design. In other words, that if you don't know about it, you don't need the vision alterations. You don't need to alter the text. It doesn't matter. It's there. If you, 
can't manipulate your, if you can manipulate your hands, you don't need to worry about it. Um, do any of you use vision impaired apps? Well, yeah. I, I love apps. And if you want to find about apps, go to the app store and look at blindness apps. One I use is Ariadne GPS, which helps me to navigate and it'll even tell me the house numbers I'm walking by, um, which, which is quite extraordinary. Um, I use Money Reader. Actually, I, I think there's a later one I use now called Cash Explainer, which will tell me the denomination of the note if I can't read the Braille on it. And it will tell me whether the note is British, Australian, American or Canadian and, and what value. Do any of you use Be My Eyes? Yeah. I think Be My Eyes is a wonderful example of how we can use technology to connect ourselves. Uh, there's about a couple of hundred thousand blind or vision impaired people registered as needing help. And there's about two million volunteers who register as people with vision who can help. In fact, uh, our son and daughter-in-law in America are both volunteers. And uh, our son got a call and the blind person or vision impaired person said, you don't sound American. He said, no, I'm an Australian, but I'm in America. Um, I use um, Be My Eyes on odd occasions. Mary went out to work one day as she usually does. And I was, I'm a consultant and I was having lunch with someone I was trying to impress and I couldn't remember which tie to wear. So I call up Be My Eyes and I, I'd cleaned up our bedroom. I wasn't wearing a tie. So I turned the camera like this. I said, look, you can see the color of my shirt and suit. I said, over on the bed here, I've got these ties. And she said, move the camera closer. I said, which, which do you think would go? I said, I'm really trying to impress somebody. <laughs> she said, second from the left. And, and uh, that's how it works. Uh, another qu acquaintance I, I'm aware of, um, she and her husband were trying for a child. She decided to do the pregnancy test. What do they call it? Peeing on a stick. Didn't want to wait till her husband got home, so she rang, uh, clicked on Be My Eyes. <laughs> A woman answered, she said, you, you can tell me, one woman to another, and the woman said, yes, you're pregnant. So she was, she, she was then able to phone her husband. What does all this technology mean? Particularly scanners, um, and you, you will, some of you with impaired vision will know more about than I do about these, these wonderful magnifiers that allow you to read. Some of the technology is quite extraordinary. It allows us to play our rightful part in society. There is a place for all of us in society's procession. And what technology and education can do, it can allow us, vision impaired and blind, to utilize our skills to help build this nation and the world, to live fuller lives, um, to parent, to have children, to travel. And that's why I think I was born at the right time. We vision impaired and blind have been in society since we lived in the caves. There have been remarkable blind people in the past, like Homer, who, who committed the Iliad and Odyssey to memory. 
and Nicholas Saunderson, and I don't have time to go through all of them, Louis Braille and the rest. But this generation and the young people here are amongst the first to have this technology to help build better lives. And if I've been able to pass on to you some of the magic and excitement I feel in this new era, then my job will have been well done. Thank you very much. Happy to answer questions. Absolutely, yes. I use Braille every day. Now, now I'm, I'm, I'm blind, but even if I had a little bit of vision. Why do I think it's important? Studies were done in the 80s. When all this technology came about, it was thought, we don't really need to teach Braille. We've got all these super technologies. And they found that students who had not been introduced to Braille and obviously couldn't see enough printed letters did not understand grammar did not fully understand punctuation and their spelling wasn't up to it. And so I think that Braille is an important part of the toolkit. I was taught by a young man um, in my day at a, a blind Catholic school in Melbourne, it just began, William Holligan, he was only 20. In those days they let people who left school teach um, years three and four. And he was just learning Braille. And we used to compete with him on whether we could get ahead with him. Um, but I was taught a lot of Braille by a man with vision who was just learning it himself. And he gave me that grounding. Yeah, I think as long as there are blind or vision impaired people in our world, and I think we will be there till the end of the world, Braille will be read. Can you imagine that a 15-year-old Louis Braille in 1824 when he was 15 lonely in a segregated school dormitory, invented something that will be used until the end of time. Does that help? Yeah. You can ask me anything, and if, if I won't answer it, I'll get Professor Croft to answer it. So. <laughs> Depends where you go. When I was a graduate student in Canada, uh, it was pretty much the same as here. When I was a teacher at Duke Law School in the United States, it was pretty much the same. But for six years, I was an inaugural member of the United Nations Committee on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. And our job was to monitor the disabilities conventions throughout the world. And for three of those years, I was chair of the committee. And I've also done work with the World Blind Union. There are four million or more blind children in this world who get no education whatsoever. 
And when talking to their governments, they say we're a poor country and we can only help the able-bodied. There are even more than 4 million, maybe 5 million deaf girls and boys not receiving education. Mary and I have been to Pacific Islands, not far from here, where blind people are still kept in their houses. Um, when I worked in Japan in 1981, it's an interesting culture, but it had a technological culture over a medieval culture without an Enlightenment or a French Revolution. And so there, if you were blind, it was your karma. As one Japanese said to me, he was very sorry I was blind, but at least I wasn't Korean. Um, <laughs> that's true. But, but I saw there blind people in sheltered workshops still now, 30 years later, nearly 40 years later, blind people are going to university uh, and are becoming lawyers, etc. It's a long progression. In Africa, where Mary has worked with refugees way out on the border between Congo and, and uh, Uganda. In fact, if you want to read our book, uh, Mary Crock et al., four of us, Refugees with Disabilities Forgotten and Invisible, we, we went to six countries. And I can assure you that if you are going to be blind or vision impaired, you are far better off in the developed world. Otherwise, you are really at the bottom of the heap. I've seen blind people in Uganda who have no equipment whatsoever, and you talk about <coughs> using the internet, and the, their problem is that they actually don't have a stable enough internet to run, or they don't have a stable enough electrical system that you can run yours. So yeah, it, um, disabled people are generally, 80% of disabled people of the one billion disabled people in our world are poor and living in developing countries. There are a lot of blind and visual impaired people doing law. Glenn Patmore, who has began with retinitis pigmentosa, is an associate professor of law at Melbourne Law School, another one of my former students. Cameron Rolls, another one of my former students, is senior lecturer at the ANU. Um, and there are blind lawyers and vision impaired lawyers in practice. What are the tips? Work on your skills. How are her computer skills? Uh, does she have some vision? So she's working on that with Zoom or other things? Yes? And JAWS? Okay. Work on your skills um, and, and be prepared to work hard. And I'm happy to talk to her at any time. Um, and don't, there are, there are 11 law schools in this state. Everyone wants to do law. So there's plenty of places where she can do law. And how do I put it? Because I've been relatively successful and many of my students populate universities, um, it's not unusual for universities to have blind students and they're, they're well aware of it and the publishers of legal books are well aware of it and will help you get actual copies uh, on a computer disk that you can use. So yes, the sky is the limit. You could become a high court judge.
and they find me on the web or you on the internet. Look, um, I'm Ron, R-O-N dot McCallum, M-C-C-A-L-L-U-M, at Sydney, S-Y-D-N-E-Y dot E-D-U dot A-U. But don't rush me because I'm, no, I'm, I'm really, I'm really going through stress at the moment. This sounds funny. I, I, Mary met a judge at a funeral, Justice Ronald Sackville. And Ronald Sackville said to him, how can, said to Mary, how can I get hold of Ron McCallum? Mary said, pretty easy. Ronald Sackville is the chief commissioner of the recent Royal Commission into Persons with Disabilities, Violence, Neglect and Abuse. So he invited me to lunch, and as I took my bite of a sandwich, he said, why aren't you working for me? Well, I said, well, Judge, I, I, so I am his special advisor, so that's keeping me very, very busy. I think it's a very interesting Royal Commission. I'm not a commissioner, I'm simply a backroom boy um, helping his honour. I have been explaining to him um, the merits of mainstream education, uh, amongst other things. Uh, but he's an amazing person. But so I'm just a bit stressed at the moment, but yeah, I will do my very best to answer your emails. I, I, I think that's enough, sir. I, I <laughs> to keep at it, to keep at it, things can get better and things got extraordinarily better for me. When I was a young teacher with tape recorders, I was working 14 hours a day. People said, why did you do that? And I said, well, I, I didn't anticipate the internet. But, um, things can get better. Be open to new ideas. Be open to new adventures. Be open to people. That would be my advice. Be brave. I married Professor Croft. That was bravery. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't think I can handle any more. Is that okay? Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.